Good to see you guys. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I'm so thankful we have a holiday where we can stop, all right, and remember the, the sacrifices that have been made for our country. So uh, it is, it's good to do that for, for us, to remember uh, just how we have our freedom. Uh, we have our freedom to, to worship today because of the many people who have given their lives. So uh, don't, it's more than just a weekend to, to go and barbecue and and, and to have a good time. It, it really is a time for us to, to reflect. Um, a couple of things I'll mention before I jump in today. I'm excited we get to continue this series today. But uh, Lucas mentioned that this Thursday night, it's going to be pretty special. Um, Jennifer and I just recently got back from a trip to Israel and the Holy Land. Um, and so Thursday night here, we're meeting in, in, in this space. Uh, we're going to be sharing about the trip. And uh, if you've ever wondered a little bit about, well, what's Israel really like? And um, I know even as a pastor going there, I had a lot of misconceptions, I think, about what it would look like and what it would be like. And um, there's just so many things you don't realize until you're actually there. And so we're going to share some of our lessons learned. Uh, our goal is to not make it boring. Okay, so it's not going to be like your, your grandma's slideshow going through vacation pictures. Uh <laughs> We're going we're gonna to make this um, interesting. So um, we're, uh, that's Thursday night. Uh, the other thing is the, the block party's coming up this weekend. We are excited about that. It's, at, um, it's actually at the Mobile Home Park. Uh, it's called Glendale Mobile Home Park off of Haynes Road is where it's going to be. Uh, so the Haynes Trailer Park there. So that's uh, this Saturday, too. If you want to help, there's all the information online. You can sign up, and we would love to have you join us for that. Um, and we're going to be doing these all summer, uh, just popping up in different places to cook and to play and, um, and just to have fun with the, the local, uh, local people. So and that's, um, uh, that's really kind of what we've got going on. Busy week uh, this week. Uh, we're in this series called The Story of David. Um, David is such an interesting character in the Bible. There's so much we can learn, a very complex character for us. Uh, today, we get to look at the aspect of his life, how David is a warrior. Now, Austin preached a message back in January when we were in our series called Binge Reading the Bible, uh, and he referenced this same passage we're going to be talking about this morning. And uh, if you were here, and, and remember this, his main point was that God should be the hero of the story. Unfortunately, far too often, I feel like we live like we are the hero of the story, like it all depends on us. And I think this is a progression. We'll do something good, um, and we like the kind of the, you know, the affirmation we get. And then we like look at what I'm doing, and we draw attention to ourselves. We start craving that response. Um, and then before long, we're bragging about ourselves. And it's like, look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at what I've done. And it's not just individually. We see churches do this too. All right? And we see church. And it's easy as a church to, to and this happens without even realizing, I think, sometimes, to take the shift from, man, we serve an incredible God to look at how great our church is. Um, and so when you see a church constantly bragging about themselves and look how good we are, look at how awesome we are, that's a red flag to me. Uh, that's a red flag to me because what it shows is kind of their, their emphasis has shifted uh, from really lifting up Jesus to lifting up themselves. 
It's a Messiah complex, really, where we think it's all about us, that we're the ones that are saving everyone instead of realizing it's God working through us. Um, and so, again, I will just kind of reemphasize what Austin shared back in January. You are not the hero of the story, and our, our church is not the hero of the story. And I, I've shared this before, and I'll share it again, but I really don't want people leaving Cornerstone bragging about how good the preaching or the band or the lights or the coffee, that's not what our church is about. It's about people leaving here and saying, man, we serve a great God. That's the emphasis. That's what we keep going back to over and over and over again. And that's where our emphasis needs to be. Um, so today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to jump right in today. There's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, man, this is such a... Uh, we're, we're talking about David and Goliath. This is a story you've heard over and over and over again. Um, but I don't know, right that you've really thought about it. And I want you to think about who is the hero of the story. It may not be who you think. Who is the hero of the story as we go through this? I'm going to pick it up in, just in verse 1. Uh, the Philistines now mustered their army for battle. They camped between Soka and Judah and Azekah at Ephes Damon. And Saul, and Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. And so the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. And I'll stop right there for a second. One of the things I love about the Bible is that when we read something like this, we can actually go back and look at the descriptions they use in the Bible to, uh, to know where these places are. And, and these are places we know where the Valley of Eli is. We know where Soka is. We know uh, where these mountains are. So you can go there today and look and see the very place he's talking about. One of the reasons we know we can trust the Bible is there is such great detail in the specifics of the story. And so when you read a story like this and you go and you stand there and look and we weren't able to go into the Valley of Elah, but we drove really close by and we, you know, our guy said, hey, over there is the Valley of Elah. And we, we, we talked about it. But, you know, when you look at this, it just it kind of reinforces, hey, this stuff really did happen. It's not made up. And one of the reasons we know is all of these details we have in these stories Verse 4, it says, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet. His bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and, and thick as a weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Um, and so, again, uh, you, you read this story, you read all of these details, and uh, there's some debate on how tall he was. We know for sure he was a tall guy, though. Okay, this is, not, this is a big dude that we're talking about. And, and nine feet is not out of the question. You know, you look at the tallest person we have on record was 8'11". So this is not like... Um, this is not like beyond believability. Uh, so he's huge. He's down there. Most uh, Israelites were small. 
Um, and so we think David was probably like five, four, you know, like short. I mean, just from the description, he was kind of the run of the family, so to speak. We talked about that last week. Um, we know Saul was a little bit bigger, but here we're setting up this epic battle. And the rest of the story is going to read like a movie screenplay, right? This is like something that's straight out of Hollywood uh, that we're setting up. The, Philistine, the Philistines versus the Israelites. They're set up on opposite mountains. And, and here is Goliath, the, the, the champion, right? And, and so uh, he, I'll kind of open up with this question. Who do you think, what do you think was the biggest enemy for the Israelites? Now, you would think it would be the Philistines, but here's my, here's my first point this morning. I think the Israelites' real enemy was trust. Did they trust God to be who he said he is, to do what he said he would do? That's really the question this morning, and we'll pick it up in verse 8, and we'll see what Goliath was challenging them. Goliath stood, he shouted a taunt across to the Israelites, Why are you all coming out to fight? He called, I'm the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. And when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. The real issue here is trust. Did they trust God to be their protector and their provider? Each day, Goliath would stand and issue this challenge across the valley. He would kind of strut out, and, and, and they were so cocky and arrogant. They're like, here, we, we don't even have to fight the battle. We'll just send out one guy, and he'll take care of it for us. And so they're kind of, they're doing battle by proxy here. And, and it, you know, Saul and the Israelites, it just says they were terrified. They didn't know what to do. They had lost their trust of God. And, and so first, let me kind of give you a little backstory, though, to, to, to kind of bring you up to where we are. This is not the first time Israel had faced giants. All the way back in Numbers uh, chapter 13, Moses had sent 12 spies ahead into Canaan to explore the land. It's the land that God had promised them, the land that is described as flowing with milk and honey, right? Uh, so it was a bountiful land, a land where you could farm and a land where you could uh, raise animals. And this is a beautiful place. Um, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 31 Uh, Ten of the spies came back, and this is what they said. Uh, The other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak, and next to them we felt like grasshoppers, and, and that's what they thought. But we know there were two spies that said, no, wait a minute, that's not not it. We can do this. And those were Caleb and Joshua. And if the Lord is pleased with us, in verse 8, he will bring us safely into the land and give it to us. It's a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Then you know the rest of the story because fear kept them out of the land and they spent the next 40 years wandering in the desert. 
before they were allowed to enter. And it was the next generation that was allowed uh, to, to enter in. But these, uh, this just shows, um, and, and Goliath, the Philistine, he was a descendant of these same giants that we're, we're talking about here. And so this just shows us this is not something new to the Israelites. They knew this story. They, they knew the story of Moses and, and they knew what had happened and they knew that they could trust God. But yet, fear won out again. Because they were looking at this through kind of earthly eyes. And we see this about Saul. He was a king like the other kings of the region who based his, his ability on how many weapons he had, how many people he had. He based it on strength. And when he looked at the Philistines, he was outnumbered. And so they were scared and they were, were afraid. Now, in 1 Samuel 17, what we read here in verse 1, it says that they are in Judah. Uh, in 1 Samuel 17, all the way back in verse 1, you know, they camped between Soka and Judah uh, and, and Azekah uh, at Ephesdamon. And what this tells us, um, at this point now, the Philistines have moved deep into Israelite territory. So uh, we've seen the Israelites come in and take possession of the land that God has given them, but they didn't drive out everybody as God commanded. And so the, the Philistines are right back in the middle of where, they're supposed, where the, the Israelites are supposed to be. And so in, in essence, what's happened is the, the conquest of the land, the, the possession of the land, it's been, it's been undone because Israel is, is really for all intensive purposes back in the wilderness again. Uh, they, th this, this Valley of Elah was a very important strategic uh, trade route from Egypt up to uh, the Middle East. And the Philistines knew if they could conquer this area that they would have control of the whole region. And so what's interesting here, it says Goliath taunted Israel every morning and every day for 40 days. Now, how long was Israel in the wilderness? Y'all remember? 40 years. There's so much symbolism here. This is not by coincidence. This is just a reminder of what happened to them before when they didn't trust God. Um, one of the commentaries I have, it said this, it said, one reason Israel had yet to drive the Philistines out is that from the perspective of the Israelites, the Philistines were strong. They were technologically advanced. They were one of the very first civilizations to work with bronze and iron, and they used those metals to make their weapons. And hence, that's why the repeated mention of all of Goliath's bronze weaponry. Because of their military might, they controlled Gezer and Megiddo and Hazer, three major cities along the most popular trade route in the world called the Way by the Sea or the Via Maris. We might compare that to controlling all the commerce in New York, Washington, D.C., and Miami, right? But from a different perspective, a more appropriate view, the Israelites' failure to drive the Philistines out was ultimately a result of their disobedience. Had they truly believed God and fought the Philistines as God intended, he would have driven them out. But none of the Philistine prowess would cow to God. His promise to drive out all the inhabitants of Cana so Israel might live in the land in peace. It was still valid, but Israel never fully believed it. 
And so that promise is the backbone of this story. And so God had given them this promise. I'm going to drive out the inhabitants before you. This is the land that I've given to you. The Israel's main enemy was trust. Did they trust God to do what God promised to do? And so now we'll kind of pick up the story with David. This is the predicament the army's in. They're seeing Goliath every day come out and... (laughs) And, and, you know, defy the army and say, hey, you sent out anybody? Won't anybody fight me? You guys are scared. He's just making a mockery out of this. Now, David isn't there. In fact, he's still shepherding in the field. But his dad kind of sent him to the front lines to check on his brothers and, and to bring them lunch. He was, David was on a DoorDash mission, okay? He's like, I, I need to take them some food. So he shows up, right? In verse 22, um, as soon as he got there, we'll skip ahead here a little bit. It said, David left his things with the keeper of the supplies. He hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with him, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. And so David uh, heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. So David asked the soldier standing nearby, What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is the reward for killing him. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you were supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. So David shows up, and he's like, what is going on here? Don't you know what God has told us? Why are you letting this this guy, even though he's a giant, why are you letting him yell out insults against our God? And why are you so scared? And and David's own brother comes up to him and is like, who are you, and why are you here? You need to be, you're not even supposed to be here. But And I would say there's a lesson here for us, too, right? Because when we confront things that we need to confront, when we show that we really believe and trust in God, sometimes some of your most vocal critics will be the ones who should have been on the same side as you all along. Sometimes your most vocal critics will be the ones who are right there in the same camp that you are, but yet they look at it and fear is preventing them from walking forward in trust. And I think that's what we see right here. Goliath is not the real problem. The real giant in this story is unbelief. Right? It's unbelief. J.D. Greer says this. He says, the obstacle is not found in God. It's It's not found in God's opponent. It is found in God's own people. I suspect God was more insulted by Israel's disbelief than he was by Goliath's blatant, blasphemous defiance. We should expect Goliath to respond the way he does, but the people of God should know better. 
The same opposition is at work in our churches today. What should be a bastion for godly ambition becomes a place of cowardly uh, timidity and unbelief. Churches are full of Eliabs who scoff at every grand vision to reach their community and their world. How different would our cities be if instead of responding with Eliab's cynical spirit, we assumed with David that God was poised to work peacefully through us. Again, their problem was trust. That was their main enemy. Goliath was just what exposed their lack of trust in God. Which kind of brings me to my next point. David proved then to Israel that God would fight their battles if they only trusted him. David had faith. Now, as we learn about David, he's a complex person. But one thing he, he didn't waver, he had faith. He had trust that God would do what God said he would do. And so when David shows up, this is when it becomes just like a movie. In verse 32, uh, this whole, I'm reading a lot of scripture today, but this is, it's, it's a lot of it's self-explanatory, and I think it's just good to kind of read this with, with, uh, with kind of fresh eyes as more than the children's story that we've grown up accustomed to. Don't worry about the Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said, and when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and, and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If an animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear, it's going, he's going to rescue me from this Philistine. And Saul finally consented, oh, okay, go ahead, he said, and, and may the Lord be with you. And Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a, and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped a sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. And he said, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into a shepherd's bag. And then, armed only with a shepherd's staff and a sling, he started off across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out towards David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. Whew, this, is, this is like building up, right? We know Saul was a head taller than all the other Israelites. So Saul's a big guy. Uh, he gives David his armor, and David's like, I can't wear this stuff. I'm just a kid, right? And so all he does is pick up some stones. He takes his sling and his staff, and he starts walking towards Goliath. Now, what's interesting here is this whole story has been setting up the fact that there should have been someone to fight Goliath, and it really shouldn't have been David. Who do you think should have been the one to go out and fight Goliath? Saul. He was a head taller than everybody else. He was the king. He was God's anointed. 
but we know because of his disobedience what we learned last week. That's what's led to David being anointed by Samuel as the next king. So uh, we know here that Saul should have been the one to fight. And not only that, there's a, there's a little, little fact here in the story that you may have missed. Um, you know, when you see David pick up the stones in a sling, you think that's like a, we think, I think we think of like a slingshot or a, a sling like as a kid's toy. This was like pretty serious. In fact, if you go back to the book of Judges, you back up in the history of Israel, uh, in, ver- in chapter 20, verse 16, it, it says this, among Benjamin's elite troops, 700 people were left-handed, and each of them could sling a rock and hit a target within a hair's breadth uh, without missing. Their elite troops used slings. Now, what's interesting about this, these elite troops were from the tribe of Benjamin. David was from the tribe of Judah. Who was from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. Saul was from the tribe. Saul was the one that should have been an expert with the sling. That was the weapon of choice for his tribe of people. And yet he is the one that has chosen to to have all the armor and all the the swords. And everything in the story is just building up saying Saul should have been the one. He was the one that God set up and gave everything he needed to defeat Goliath. And yet David, this little kid, walks in and takes the role that rightfully should have been Saul's if he would have had trust. And so when David takes on Goliath, this is just not one man against another. This is nation against nation. This is the struggle between whose God is real and true. Whose God is the one that can uh, can give the battle to the warrior. And I feel like David, he knew he was the anointed king. He knew God's spirit was with was upon him. He knew that whatever happened, this was something he had to do. And I, and I have to, to feel like when David walked up, he wasn't sure uh, exactly how this was going to work out, but he trusted God would give him the victory. And so, and that's what we see. His trust in God was what propelled him to victory. And this is what it's... Um, then my next point here is David's victory. It, it really, it, what it did, it proved who the true God was. Let's keep going in the story. Verse 45, David replied to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's army, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you. And I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give, you, give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone. He hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. He ran over, he pulled Goliath's sword out from its sheath, and David used it to kill him and cut off his head. Okay, this is like... This story is like, you know, 
how, I mean, the, the Philistine army watching was like, not only did, did David beat the warrior with a single stone, he took his own sword out and cut off his opponent's head with it. This is like the ultimate, this is like the ultimate, like, sign of disrespect, right? Uh, to beat you with your own weapon and, and to cut off his head. This is, man, and so it, it's tempting, though. It's tempting, though, to look at how great David is. David is incredible. Look at what David did. And did you see what David did? And, and we teach this sometimes, I think, that. Like, look at how awesome David was. He was the underdog. And this story, though, is not about David. Would you agree with me? The story, it's not about David. It's about how great God is to deliver his people. Saul was the one that should have done it. He didn't, so David stepped in. If David wouldn't have stepped in, God would raise up someone else to do it. The same is true for us today. God will use whoever is willing to submit and surrender and allow God to work through us, but the story is not about us. We're not the main character. We're supporting cast for the main character who is God. And that's how we live our life. And when we make ourselves the main character of the story, whew, this is when we get ourselves in trouble. I've had people ask me, have you seen all these stories of pastors falling and, and, and moral failures and all this stuff happening in churches around the country and, and all this abuse of power that we see? The reason is because pastors have become the hero of the story in their own eyes. The, the reason is because pastors have become the main character. And instead, instead of allowing God to be the main character of, of the story. Really, the story of David and Goliath, it's not exceptional. It's not unusual. The story of David illustrates a principle that is really normal throughout the pages of Scripture. God uses the weak so that he will get the glory when great things are done. That, that's a story we see time after time in Scripture. So that kind of leads me to, well, well who, do the, who are the characters in this movie? Who are the characters in the story? What do they represent? Um, you know, when we, the question is left with, who are we in the story? And, you know, that, that's the question we've got to ask. Who do you think Goliath represents? Goliath, I would say... Uh, he represents this enemy that we can't overcome on our own. For us, that enemy is sin. That, 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 that enemy that, you know, and there's even references in this story. It talks about the scales of, of Goliath's armors that kind of foreshadows and paints him as this uh, Satan serpentine-like figure uh, over the Israelite army. Uh, the enemy we face is sin. It's death. It's this enemy that we can't conquer on our own. So who does David represent then? Represents Jesus, the one who came to defeat the enemy that we could not defeat uh, on our own. And so David is this unlikely shepherd from a little town in Bethlehem uh, that came to fight the enemy for us. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? That, that's what's interesting. Then who does that mean we are? We're not David. Does, do you know who we are? We're, we're the Israelites over in the corner scared and running away because we don't know what to do and we don't have the power to do anything on our own. 
That, that's who we are in the story. We're Eliab over in the corner looking down on, on those who are trying to move forward in faith and, 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 and questioning Jesus because we're too scared. That's not the story you're taught in kids' ministry, is it? If you're David, if you can do anything you want, if you put your mind to it, if you trust God, you can defeat every giant in your life. You know, I think I would rather have Jesus fight those battles for me. And this is where, again, I think as we look at Scripture, we, we learn what it's like to trust God over and over and over again. And we realize we cannot save ourselves. That's where Jesus steps in. He does what we cannot do on our own. Uh, one pastor said this. He said, we stand in a situation similar to Israel in need uh, of, a, of a representative to save us from the menacing giant of sin. Humanity's most serious and most fundamental problem, the problem behind all of our problems, is our alienation from God. And just like Israel versus the giant, there's nothing that any of us can do about that. In fact, there's nothing any of us of our own accord even desire to do about this. We are the hordes of Israelites hiding in our tents, not dealing with the threat of sin, guilt, and death. God's judgment looms over us as terrifying as the giant Goliath, and we are powerless to stop it. What we need, like Israel, is a representative to challenge this giant of judgment on our behalf. That's what we need. Uh, that's what we need. Uh, and we see, uh, I, I saw another pastor in a commentary, he said this, he said, in the same way, we, as it were, we stand on the hillside surveying the story of history. Down in the valley, we see our Christ, Jesus, entering the battle, armed only with a beam of wood strapped to his shoulders. We see him face the snake who has tyrannized our lives as he hangs on the cross. There is Jesus, just like David, appearing small, compared to the might of the Roman Empire, appearing weak compared to the power of the snake. But he enters the battle bravely. He entrusts himself to God. We see him saying, in effect, what David says, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, with lies and threats and accusations, with sin and law and death. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, whom you have defied. This day you may strike my heel, but the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will crush your head. This is what this story portrays for us. It's what I love about the story of David and Goliath. It's so much deeper than just the story of the underdog with the slaying, slaying Goliath. This is the problem we all face. Now, what we see here is Goliath was the one who stands between the Philistines and Israel. He was, he was the problem. He was the one that stands between them. What we needed was a representative to stand between and, and fight on our behalf. This morning we sang a song, um, uh, an old hymn. I love uh, sometimes when we sing hymns, I just hear everybody singing out. We sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And there's a line in this song. Um, there's a line that says, Jesus sought me when a stranger... Wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me with danger, from danger interposed his precious blood. Have you ever wondered, uh, you ever heard that phrase, interposed his precious blood? We don't use the word, you, what does the word interpose mean? Have you ever thought that? The word interpose, 
it means to place or insert between one thing and another. And so what Jesus did, he interposed himself between me and the judgment of God. Like David, he was chosen by God to be the man in between, to defeat death and to kill it, to give us the victory. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what David did for the Israelites. And so I look at all of this story and what it just reaffirms to me is that we can trust God. That we're fighting way too many of our battles on our own without God's help. We think we can do this and we don't need God. But in fact, God is saying, do you trust me? All right. Uh, I look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It says this. It says, we use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and we teach them to obey Christ. This is what we do. We battle not like the world wants us to, not like the world expects, but we battle like God tells us to. Trusting Him, using His Word. And so, again... You know, we look at this story, and we could end right here, and you could see, okay, that's the end of the story, but there's more to it. The Israelites now have a choice. What are they going to do as a result of what they just saw happen? And there's a few more verses here. Verse 51, when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. The bodies of the dead and wounded Philistines were strewn all along the road for Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron, and then the Israelites' army returned and plundered the deserted Philistine camp. And then it says this, this, David took the Philistines' head to Jerusalem, but he stored the man's armor in his own tent. What we see here taking place is the people learning what it looks like to trust God. It's like David, he fought this battle. He killed Goliath. The men are running. Now they're emboldened enough to do what God wanted them to do, to to chase after this army, to drive them out. And and what we see throughout the Old Testament, it it can be graphic, it can be bloody, but what we're seeing uh, is God kind of leading his people to take possession of the land that he wanted to give them. And um, this is, this is, we could spend weeks just talking about this whole uh, kind of the, the violence in the Old Testament um, to understand uh, what happened and what led up to this point and the evil that was being judged. And uh, there's a lot going on there. But, I, but, but really, this story today, it comes down to the people trust God. It's the same story that we are faced with today. Do we trust God? Do we trust God? Do we trust him to do what he said he would do? Do we trust him to give us the words to say? Do we trust him uh, to help us reach out and disciple those and, and reach out to those people who don't know Jesus yet? Do we trust him, right, to, as we learn in his word, as we grow in our faith? Do we trust him to change us and help us be the person he created us to be? Do we trust him with the gifts he has given us to, to use those gifts for, for his glory? You see, it's really a matter of trust that we 
live our life. And, and, and I, you know, we can talk about being victorious over our own giants and all these giants in our life that we're facing, but it comes down to trust. It's not about us. It's about the God who lives in us and through us. Um, and so the story of the Bible you see over and over again is God uses ordinary people who have placed their faith in, in him. He uses ordinary people to do some extraordinary things. That should motivate us. That should encourage us. That should give us hope about what he wants to do through us. And so today, um, I, I don't know, you know, as we get into this story and as we've learned, maybe you just thought this was another kid's story. But I want you to know it's a story that should remind us, do we really trust God? Do you trust him to save you? That's the biggest question you need to ask yourself. Are you still trying to save yourself? Are you still trying to save yourself by being good enough and doing enough good things or giving enough money or attending church often enough? None of those things will save you. Because you're unable to save yourself. The only way that God, you can be made right with God is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. The one who came in between on your behalf. He's the one that, that fought the battle that we couldn't fight. And so this morning, that's my question to you. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Have you put your faith in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today... Uh, as we look at this story of giants and look at this story of David accomplishing something great, help us to realize it's all because you are a great God. It's all because that you proved over and over again that you are trustworthy, that we can put our faith and our trust in you. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we face this life and we look at all the, the turmoil around us and even this past week, we see the evil events all around us, Lord. My prayer is that you would help us to still to continue to trust you. That we would allow you to fight our battles. That we would just surrender ourselves and submit ourselves and align ourselves underneath you. So that you can use us to do what you want to do. Lord, we... Um, we pray for those people listening online today and, and the people in this room that ev each and every person would be confident in, in the knowledge of their salvation. That they would be able to look and, at their life and examine their hearts and know and understand that you saved them. Not based on anything that they have done, but based on what Jesus did for them on the cross. Heavenly Father, we, just, we come to you today humble and thankful for, for Jesus and for the salvation we can receive through him by faith. Lord, I thank you for this church, and not because this church is great, but because we serve a great God. And Lord, will you use us? Will you help us to, to get out of the way, to take ourselves off the pedestal, so that when people look at us, they just see a reflection of you. That's what you've called us to be, reflections that, that brightly reflect the glory of God to this world we live in. Lord, we, um, we thank you. We thank you for a series that even in the, the depths of the Old Testament, we see Jesus shining through. And so, Heavenly Father, let us continue to shine that light forward for Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen.